Now, welcome back to our two-weekly endoscopy news podcast. I'm Bjorn Remaken, and I'm bringing you an update on the BSG campus, which was widely regarded as a success by the 1,400 paying delegates who joined the meeting virtually. In addition, there were 700 abstracts, and um, I must admit that I I was very impressed. The IT platform held up. The streaming of uh, presentations were going sleekly. There was no uh, hold-up. Speakers own uh, Wi-Fi at home sometimes let them down a little bit. But on the whole, uh, everything ran very smoothly, and we enjoyed more than 100 presenters uh, giving us an update on all things uh, gastroenterology. Of course, we're not going to look at everything. We are going to look at the things which are relevant to us uh, us endoscopists. Now, the opening session was, of course, chaired by President Alistair McKinley and his uh, senior BSG secretary, Stuart McPherson. It included a presentation on climate change by Fiona Goodley. By the way, Andrew Goddard, president of the Royal College of Physicians, has highlighted climate change as one of what he calls the four horsemen of the potential future medical apocalypse. So it clearly is an important issue on the horizon. Um, what are the other three apocalyptic horsemen for medicine? Antibiotic resistance, political motivated destruction and a future viral pandemic. Well, that last thing proved to be prophetic, didn't it? Clearly, it's high time that we start thinking about the impact of healthcare on global warming, and uh, virtual meetings are here to stay, no doubt, as are telephone clinics. Now, Fiona Goodley at, at the BMJ was then talking about the need for healthcare to be more environmentally friendly. She emphasized the need for more preventative care. Must admit that I'm a bit skeptical about that. Uh, will people accept high, higher taxation on meat and alcohol and huge tax rises in tobacco? Not sure. Anyway, the Center for Sustainable Healthcare has asked medical specialities what they're planning to do uh, to mitigate against climate disaster in the future. I don't think that they got a reply as yet from the BSG, but there is an American gastroenterology paper on the topic. However, I'm glad to say that there is an endoscopy initiative, the Green Endoscopy Initiative, spearheaded by Boo Hussein at King's in London. Hurrah! Well done, Boo. The Twitter handle is at Green Endoscopy, one word. Did you know that endoscopy is the third worst hospital department in terms of environmental impact? So, what can we do as endoscopists? Well, we can do fewer procedures, of course. Demand could be reduced, perhaps by screening people with a fit test first or fecal calprotectin levels, or perhaps doing more capsule endoscopies rather than order endoscopies. Now, on the topic of fit, by the way, the NICE FIT study reported that only 3% of patients referred for an urgent colonoscopy on the two-week pathway actually had bowel cancer. So in the, in the other 29, it was a waste of time, so to speak. And by setting a, a detection threshold for fit at 10 microgram per gram feces, you can reduce the number of colonoscopies by 80% and still detect 91% of cancers. Sounds promising. And finally, the Green Endoscopy Initiative, of course, called for less waste by uh, less use of the burn bins and put more of our stuff into the black uh, ordinary waste bins, uh, more recycling and for company to use less packaging. Then Fiona Goodley controversially asked each of us to try to become carbon neutral by 2025. How can you do this? 
Well, you can become a vegetarian. You can choose to cycle to work rather than drive to work. You can avoid flying as much as possible. You can buy less clothes. Well, in fact, you buy less of everything. And you can, uh, in the UK, sign up for a green energy provider. Then we had Michael Wallace at the Mayo Clinic. He gave us a presentation about AI in endoscopy. He showed examples of uh, the Medtronic's GI Genius. I hate that name, as you know. Uh, seeing polyps in spite of bubbles. Well, for goodness sake, you should wash the bubbles away and uh, not rely on AI to see through them. Anyway, he reminded us that uh, the absolute adenoma detection rate improved by some 10% by using AI. On the whole, there was nothing much new from Michael. And, and my own expectation, though, is that AI paired with capsule technologies will in the future mean the end of diagnostic endoscopy. My own prediction is that, we, like ERCP, everything will be therapeutic in the future. Um, I'm going to skip over the IBD symposium because it's got nothing to do with endoscopy. Uh, but in the pancreas section, which was hosted by my colleague Matt Huggett from Leeds, had a few interesting endoscopy-relevant points. He started with Andy Smith, our very own hepatobiliary surgeon from Leeds. He was talking about surgery for chronic pancreatitis versus endoscopy. Well, endoscopic management, that's basically sphincterotomy, dilatation of strictures, or perhaps placing PD stents when there is a stricture. Anyway, he referred a lot to the ESCAPE trial uh, published in JAMA last year. A reference is on the website. We show that 40% of improvements in pain with endoscopic intervention versus 58% of improvement with surgery. But the follow-up was only 18 months in that study. So you wonder how do these patients actually do in the longer follow-up. Then an interesting question came up in the discussion afterwards. Uh, do patients who have an improvement in pain after placement of a PD stent do better with surgery? And of course you expect them to because that's part of the selection process in Leeds. But to my surprise, Andy didn't really think he had any great predictive value. Instead he said, those who clearly had the best outcomes with surgery were patients who went for surgery because they wanted to get back to work. Those who didn't have any aspiration to get back work did less well with surgery. We then had a presentation from Stuart Bonington, who again reminded us that screening for pancreatic cancer in high-risk individuals doesn't actually work, but we knew that. Now, another valued colleague of mine from Leeds, Bharat Paranandi, of course, gave us an, yet another update on US-guided interventions. Now, you already, of course, heard Bharat talking on the topic in an earlier podcast, which is still available to download on the podcast app of your choice. And then finally, and I take my hat off to John Leeds at the Freeman Hospital. He was the star of the session because he was talking live. All the others had recorded their presentation. But John Leeds from Newcastle, he talked non-stop for 15 minutes on medical management of chronic pancreatitis without any hesitation, repetition or deviation. Moving on uh, to the Neurogastroenterology and Motility Symposium. What on earth was there in that uh, symposium of relevance to endoscopy? Well, let me tell you. Professor Jan Tack from Leuven uh, in Belgium uh, was probably the star of the show, I think, uh, on that particular session anyway. He was talking about gastroparesis. This topic is, of course, of relevance to, to those of you who do gastric poem or G-poem. And to my surprise, he pointed to several studies which showed 
that there was no relationship between symptom severity and the degree of delay in gastric emptying. Yes, you heard that right. Furthermore, drug interventions which accelerate gastric emptying doesn't make any difference to symptoms. And it was even worse than that because he, he highlighted a study by Parisha et al. from 2015 in gastroenterology, which basically showed that it was patients with the measured slowest gastric emptying who were the most likely to feel better after a year. Therefore, the, the simplistic idea that improving gastric emptying by a G-pole and cutting the pylorus would actually improve symptoms is probably somewhat optimistic. This field is more complicated than that. There's more to these patients just than just slow gastric emptying. And that was one of Jan Tak's points, that uh, gastric emptying studies actually is very crude measurement of what the stomach does. And he highlighted that really we need a, an RCT of a sham G poem versus real G poem. And of course, the same is true for gastric electrical stimulation. <laughs> On reflection, perhaps we'll never see an RCT of gastric pacing as two studies by Richard McCullum uh, et al. have already shown that the stomach doesn't move any differently whether that pacing box is switched on or off. In spite of this, patients had a significant improvement, average 68% improvement in total symptom score and quality of life after the box had been placed, whether it was connected up or not. Oh my God, be grateful that you, as an endoscopist, only need to worry about uh, whether to remove polyps or not. I mean, this is complex stuff. How do you even begin to make head and tail of this? Anyway, uh, moving on to the pathology symposium, it was dedicated to eosinophilic GI disorders, called EGIDs for short. And the only one that you might have heard about is eosinophilic esophagitis, of course, but there is eosinophilic gastritis, enteritis, and colitis. In fact, very rarely there are patients who have a pan-gut infiltration with eosinophils. Anyway, my take-home message from this session was that almost always, if you find lots of eosinophils in the mucosal biopsies, it is usually secondary to something rather than a primary condition. Now, recognized causes of secondary mucosa eosinophilia includes inflammatory bowel disease, non-strotals, parasites, of course, CMV, food allergies, H. pylori, celiac disease, and vasculitis, rarely. They used to call it Church-Strauss syndrome, didn't they? But they call it something else now. Now, as far as eosinophilic esophagitis goes, you know that it's treated with PPI, topical steroids, or an exclusion diet. Those are the three ways to treat uh, EOE. And an exclusion diet is very effective, 70% effective. But apparently, very few can actually put up with it because the diet is miserable. And then you introduce food stuff one after the other and then have another uh, endoscopy at each point, each foodstuff um, uh, being reintroduced. So the whole thing is, is quite awful for the patients. And for that reason, most don't actually put up with it. Another interesting fact is that it's the patients with a longer history of eosinophilic esophagitis who actually develop the strictures. It's the prolonged and grumbling esophageal inflammation which causes stricturing. So you see it late. Now, the colorectal symposium was dedicated to rectal cancer. 
And as you know, the incidence of colorectal cancer in people below the age of 50 is increasing around the world. Overall mortality appears to be falling, but for rectal cancer, the mortality is increasing. Anisha Suka, a research fellow at St. Mark, told us that perhaps the way to identify patients of higher than average risk of getting future cancer is, is not to count the size and number of polyps, but instead to look at uh, chromosomal copy number alterations. It sounds very expensive, but apparently it's only cost £20, so it's cheap really. I wasn't clear at the end of the presentation whether you look for copy number alterations in random mucosal biopsies or in the polyps themselves. Then there was a talk by Gina Brown at the Royal Marston to remind us that uh, many more rectal cancers can be removed by local excision than is currently done. The rectum is uh, there for a reason and it's good to keep it as long as you can. Of course, T1 cancers and early T2 cancers, when the cancer is just penetrating into the muscle probra layer, but is nowhere near through all of it, can be removed locally, TEMS in terms of T2 disease. But of course, if it's gone through all the layers of the muscle probra, then it's unsuitable for local excision. And you're talking either chemo, rad or surgery or both. Now, the staging, of course, is best done by high-resolution MRI, which can distinguish between early and advanced disease. And of course, if after a local excision, histology shows high-risk features, then the patients are considered for chemoradiotherapy. Apparently, there's a trial on this topic called the PRESERVE trial, which is running at the moment, and hopefully that will prove the concept. Norika Suzuku, our friend from St. Mark's, presented a case of rectal cancer, which she had, of course, removed by ESD. And um, there was SM2 invasion, as you know, that means that its cancer had invaded into the kind of the middle of the submucosal plane. And of course, there was lymphovascular invasion. We always have a problem when we remove cancer. There's always something to keep you awake at night after resecting uh, cancer. Anyway, at St. Mark, the MDT team uh, estimated that the risk of a nodal micrometastasis was 12% only. Uh, anyway, Noriko was doing three monthly sigmoidoscopies to look at the EMR scar in the rectum, and uh, there were no change. I don't really know the evidence for that, to be honest. Uh, but in the year following the ESD, several small lung metastases popped up and were seen on CT, whilst the rectal MRI remained unremarkable. Now, of course, this patient should really have gone along with consolidation chemoradiotherapy afterwards. That could have stopped this debacle, uh, but he turned it down. Now, in the esophageal symposium, Dr. Inde Maney from Belfast gave us an update about esophageal stents. There was nothing much new there, really. He, he referred to an old trial from 2013 which compared brachytherapy with stenting plus brachytherapy, and perhaps unsurprisingly, stenting plus brachytherapy, uh, those patients survived longer, which is a bit surprising, to be honest. You wouldn't expect them to survive longer. You would perhaps expect them to survive with swallowing okay for longer, but actually overall survival for longer was a bit of a surprise. 11 months versus five months if you had a standard stent only. Uh, and then there was another old study again from 2012 this time, looking at radioactive stents, which there also seemed to be an overall survival for radioactive stents. 
I'm not surprised that we haven't seen any, uh, well, at least I haven't seen any radioactive stents. I mean, how do you handle a thing like that? Do you, do you wear lead gloves and a lead hat? Or, you know, how do you actually place a radioactive stent without irradiating yourself and your stuff in the process? Hmm, I bet that's where the problem lies, really. Then we had Mohammed Hussein at the UCL. He presented a, a data on AI to look at Barrett's. And he was paired with a guy called Martin Everson, also from UCL, who also used AI to look for superficial or early squamous cell carcinomas. In both cases, these, these systems seem to be great, but of course they've been trained to look at images, so they become good at, at picking up cancer in these images that, that's been shown to it. How they actually perform in the wild remains to be seen, but no doubt they're going to come, aren't they? Then, at long last, we had the endoscopy symposium chaired by Ian Penman from Edinburgh. Great. Dr. Roy Sertnico started with a talk on gluing of gastric varices. His talk was really about acute bleeding, but of course there's some evidence for prophylactic gluing of gastric varices, especially if they're large and threatening. The main thrust of his talk was to reduce the risk of embolization. It only happens about in about 0.7% of, of cases. The risk goes up if you inject too fast or if you inject too much glue. Uh, I think two mil is often seen as the, the maximum. Uh, but of course, he highlighted that there is a, a third factor, and that is that the glue takes longer to set if you mix it with lipidol. And for that reason, he recommends that we use straight glue without any mixing. And uh, he also reminded us not to go anywhere near the site of the previous bleeding. You can often see the, the, the kind of the bulging uh, varices of the fundus of the stomach with a little red spot where, the, where it has bled uh, in the recent past. Of course, if you touch it, all hell breaks loose. You get the, all the, the bleeding restarts. And if you ever wonder what could possibly go wrong, you should watch his videos because you were left in no illusion that touching the little red spot is a bad idea. He only in passing mentioned thrombin injection, which I'm a, a great advocate for, because it's a lot easier to use. There's no risk of embolization or of blocking the scope. But of course, it's far more expensive. That's a problem. Now, Sri Shaheba uh, chaired the endoscopy symposium, and he asked uh, Roy about uh, achieving immediate hemostasis by placing a clip over the bleeding varics. Hooray! What a great idea that is. That's my first thought if I see bleeding varics, uh, because it's quick. You know, you make a quarter turn to the nurse. Could I have the clip, please? 10, 15 seconds later, bang, hemostasis, done. Next patient. Uh, I'm not sure that Roy was a fan, really, because he started to talk about applying bands instead, which, of course, misses the whole point of, of the speed uh, of clipping. Anyway. Then um, Roy's talk was, was followed by Douglas Adler from the US. He was talking about US guided management of varices. And unfortunately, this whole field is quite tricky because the coils uh, had to be manually loaded into US needles. And, and the, the, the coils aren't made to be used by US needles. So the whole thing is a bit fiddly. There's no product out there with ready loaded coils, ready for deployment or anything. And another issue is that the worst variceal bleeds are, of course, in the operating theater or in ICU. And your EUS machine is sitting in the endoscopy unit. So there's a, there's a lot of 
practical problems with, with achieving areas-guided uh, management of viruses. I'm beginning to think, as you probably know if you've been following me, that what we should do in the endoscopy unit is achieve immediate hemostasis uh, so the patient is stable overnight, and then the next day, these patients, I think, should go to the interventional radiologist. And they can put a stent through the splenic vein thrombos, they can embolize the, the gastric fundal veins, or the esophageal veins, or both. And they can put a tips in, they, could, they have an awesome number of tools in the armamentarium to deal with the portal hypertension. They can do way more than we can do in the endoscopy unit, and I think our patients deserve that. Manu Nayar from the Freeman Hospital then gave us an update on LAMS. He was talking about the UK and Ireland LAMS Collaborate, which uh, basically showed us that immediate problems are rare, only occur about 3% of cases, maldeployment, migration, bleeding, late complications, however, were far more common, occurred in about uh, 32% of cases, buried stents, migration, stent blockage, bleeding. But on the whole, uh, LAMS, which you know takes two minutes to place a, a lumen opposing stent, uh, the overall success rate in dealing with a pancreatic pseudosis was nearly 90%, and with a mortality rate of 7%. And then Horst Neuhaus from Düsseldorf was invited to give us the foundation lecture on third space endoscopy. That's, of course, the third space being the submucosal plane where you can tunnel into poems, for example. And he quoted a study uh, from JAMA 2019, a randomized controlled trial of poem versus dilatation, where the success rate for poem was 92% versus 70% for dilatation. Fortunately, in this trial, patients who failed a first dilatation weren't then allowed to come back for a second attempt with a larger balloon. Uh, you know, if they had been allowed to do that, they might have done better than 70% success rate, of course. Anyway, another randomized study that he quoted compared poem versus myotomy plus fund application. Uh, it was published by New England Journal of Medicine in 2019. And basically, there were comparable results between poem and myotomy. The, the only difference was that patients who were randomized to POEM were more likely to be on a PPI afterwards than patients on who had been treated with a fund application, which I, I guess you would expect. My own little niggling concern about POEM is that it's been shown in past studies that the risk of esophageal cancer after dilatation is around 1 in 700 patient years. So it's not it's not common, but it's not rare either. And that risk has been shown to be lower if you do a fund application uh, for these patients. And of course, with a, with a poem, you don't do fund applications. Anyway, there are other ways, of course. Uh, Horace reminded us that uh, uh, third space endoscopy can help. You can, for example, use it to de-roof esophageal diverticulums. You can, uh, you can use it to trend sancus diverticulums. Uh, you, can, you can remove submucosal lesions. Well, of course, this is all uh, very recent fields, and there's only been one study, uh, I think that was a meta-analysis of multiple case series, some 16 somewhat scrappy case series, usually from China, involving some 700 lesions, though, uh, were included in the analysis published in Gastroenterology 2017. The, the, the outcome data was difficult to make head and tail of. The complication rate ranged from 0% to 43%. I think, well, this is the problem with retrospective analysis, isn't it? You Perhaps you remember the successes and you forget your failures and you sure as damn it don't want to publish them and wash your dirty linen in public. I, I don't know what the, 
what the reason is behind these hugely varied um, complication rates. But there was there was less variation in the success rates, which sort of about ninety five percent, which seems promising. But of course, surgeons don't have any problems. For example, removing a lay myoma from the esophagus, they tell me that like, shelling out peace is the easiest thing in the world. They just plop out. Anyway, the endoscopy symposium was finished by our own Noriko Suzuki from St. Mark's and made the point that, in general, uh, endoscopists should be prepared to remove SMSA level 1 and level 2 polyps. And for those of you who are not familiar with the SMSA level, that includes an easily accessible pedunculated polyp up to 2 cm in size or a flat polyp up to 1 cm in size, as a general idea. She also made a plea not to tattoo lesions willy-nilly. Uh, certainly don't tattoo them if you think they can be removed endoscopically. Also, not to place the tattoos any closer than 5 centimeters, and please place the tattoo on the opposite colonic wall. Because if you place the tattoo too close to the polyp and, and the ink seeps below the polyp, you get a blackout of the submucosal plane, which makes endoscopic removal more difficult and ESD probably impossible. Right, that was the end of the endoscopic session. And then Professor Rebecca Fitzgerald gave us the Sir Arthur Hurst lecture. The topic was finding GI cancer at an early stage, of course. And again, I've left in no doubt that the way ahead is chromosomal copy number analysis. This is the way to go, really. She also men mentioned GRAIL. GRAIL, apparently, is a private company based in the US which has developed a blood-based screening test looking for cancer signatures, which are a bit of circulating bits of mutated cancer DNA in circulation. You can look for some 50 forms of cancer. And apparently the NHS is going to contribute an initial 165,000 asymptomatic people to, to a GRAIL-sponsored study. And if the results look promising, a further million participants will be added uh, in the future. She finished by emphasizing that by finding cancer earlier, we can save money. You know, when they talk cost-effectiveness, it, it annoys me, because surely, as these patients survive the cancers, they will grow older, accumulate further disease, develop further cancers, dementia, vascular disease become increasingly frail and requiring even more expensive care. So surely, if you're talking cost-effectiveness, the cheapest thing to do is to let people simply die. My point isn't that we should let people die, but that applying cost-effectiveness analysis on these problems is simply wrong. As doctors, we save lives because it's the right thing to do, because lives are worth saving. Not because it, it, it kind of saves money in the long run by some analysis looking at one single uh, outcome measure in the future. And that, I think, uh, was also highlighted by the final presentation. And again, I take my hat off to the BSG organizers because it was a stroke of genius to invite Professor Andrew Goddard, a gastroenterologist, who also is the president of the Royal College of Physicians, to finish the BSG campus by a, giving a New Perspectives lectures. Now, he started by highlighting what used to be the, this age pyramid graph. You're, you're familiar with it, which is no longer a pyramid. And now it looks more like a, like, a, like a lump at the top. 
the proportion of people above the age of 65 is increasing in most re uh, regions of the world. And the number of uh, people in the working age group is, is falling. And furthermore, most of these old people will be in rural and coastal locations in the, in, in the UK. Now, that's of course particularly troubling because he showed a recent data which showed that 50% of us consultants work within 10 miles of the medical school we trained in. And 80% work within 50 miles of where they trained. And of course, there's no medical school at Skegness or Scarborough. So who's going to look after all these old, old people stuck in rural and coastal locations? And of course, he reminded us uh, and, and Rebecca Fitzgerald that with an aging population, surviving cancers, emergency admissions would be increasing year upon year by 3%. The number of A&E attendances would increase because, of course, as we age, we accumulate an increasing number of concurrent problems. Uh, no shit, Sherlock. And, and the reference for that is on the website. He also highlighted that the medical workforce has changed. Young doctors want better work-life balance. A higher proportion take time out uh, to have babies, hopefully, and, uh, and probably, well, definitely less likely to work full-time. And, uh, and of course, people also have huge university debts nowadays, which they didn't used to have in the old days. And perhaps they're not prepared to work on minimum paid like, like I did. 30 years ago, 3 o'clock in the morning, the cheapest pair of hands in hospital wasn't a porter or a cleaner or a nurse. It was a junior doctor. He was paid less than any other member of the workforce. Now, Andrew Goddard uh, made the plea that we, s we absolutely need to train more doctors and uh, make sure that the NHS retains them. And of course, we're more likely to stay, stay happy with work if three primary drivers of fulfillment uh, are, are addressed. The first driver is belonging. We need to feel like we're a valuable member of a team doing something which is worthwhile. The second driver is autonomy. We need to feel in control of our professional life. And then the third driver is mastery, uh, being excellent at something. And uh, Andrew Goddard's final message was, what we need to do for the future is invest in our young medical staff. It made me think back to the junior doctor's contract negotiation when they broke down five years ago. You remember, the government wanted to remove compensation for working longer hours and the negotiations broke down and the junior doctors went on strike. Essentially, the government wanted to devalue the, the vital work junior doctors do at evenings and at weekends. Where was the Royal College of Physicians then when the juniors went on strike? Did they stand shoulder to shoulder with the junior doctors on the barricades? Or, or did they do a, a Bruce Keogh deal uh, with the Department of Health colluding against junior doctors and the, and the strike? To be honest, I can't remember. And I think that's a bit of a bad sign in itself. Anyway, Andrew Goddard is a new broom. He was only uh, inaugurated last year. So hopefully things have changed at the Royal College of Physicians. Anyway, on that bombshell, uh, I'll finish. And uh, thanks for listening. And I hope to catch up with you again in two weeks' time. Thanks for listening.